Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast, a podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal? To help you lead like never before in your church or in your business. And now, your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 267 of the podcast. My name is Carrie Newhoff, and I hope our time together today helps you lead like never before. Well, I love being on the road and I've had a chance to meet a lot of you, hundreds of you, well, maybe even more than that over the last few months, uh, just on the road and run into so many of you who listen. And I just want to thank you for your feedback. Thank you for your encouragement. Uh, Man, you guys are amazing. And it's fun because anytime I meet a podcast listener, we have a couple of minutes together. I ask like, okay, what would you change? What would you do? What would you do differently? And what I keep hearing is you love the eclectic format. You love that it kind of isn't the same every episode. And um, man, I run into binge listeners. Uh, You you guys, some of you who've just discovered the podcast are like, yep, I went back and in two months listened to all the episodes. I'm like, you are better than me. I'll tell you that. (laughs) But hey, it's wonderful. And so thanks. Your feedback, your interaction online and in person is amazing. Um, By the way, you can find me on the socials on every platform. I'm just my full name, Carrie Newhoff, which is so easy to spell. Uh, But obviously you have the spelling in front of you on your device listening to this podcast. Or on Twitter, I'm C. Newhoff. C. Newhoff. Some guy took Carrie Newhoff like 100 years ago and I can't get it back. But anyway, um, C. Newhoff on Twitter, Carrie Newhoff on Instagram and Facebook. Would love to connect with you there. And if this episode or other episodes are helpful, take a screenshot and share it with your friends. And uh, just thank you. Thanks for making this so awesome. Speaking of fun guests, my guest today is Margaret Feinberg. And her work has been featured in such varying places as USA Today, The Washington Post, PBS, CNN, The Los Angeles Times. Her books have sold over a million copies and she speaks at conferences all over the world. Christianity Today has named her as one of 50 women most shaping culture and church today. And we talk about all that and a whole lot more in today's episode. And uh, I'll tell you, it was a really life-giving conversation. I think you're going to love it. If you ever uh, want to create content, so many of you are creating content, uh, you're going to love today's episode. And speaking of creating content, I read a stat recently that I just found hard to believe. Um, A lot of the stuff you see on the internet, um, how reliable is it? I don't know. But something like 75% of millennials and Gen Z would tell you that their number one career choice is to become a YouTuber. I'm like, really? Uh, Video is where it's at. And we had an episode recently with Sean Cannell where uh, we shared YouTube secrets, how to get started and everything. Um, But it also means that if you're not really taking social and video seriously, what are you doing? And here's the reality. For a lot of churches and for a lot of businesses, you're trying to figure out exactly how to do that. And it's hard to figure out how to do that. So if you need some fire for your content on social, including video, why haven't you checked out ProMedia Fire? Listeners of this podcast are going to receive 10% off plans for life at promediafire.com forward slash carry, C-A-R-E-Y. That's promediafire.com forward slash carry. And they are basically like a virtual staff member for you. Uh, So for a very reasonable monthly fee, you get all your social done. They will create bumpers, videos. I mean, it's just amazing. So check it out at promediafire.com forward slash carry. 
also, summer's here, right? So you know what that means. And I know for those of you in church leadership, and even for those of you who run companies, it's like, eh, yeah, you know what? People are just gone. And how do you train people when people are all over the place? They're at the lake, they're on vacation, they're not out. I mean, it's almost impossible to get people in a room. Well, fortunately for training, you don't have to do that anymore. Trained up by Serve HQ can equip your volunteers and leaders for the fall season without calling summer meetings. So you can train your people on the go. With Trained Up, you can get needed training for your volunteers and leaders without scheduling more meetings. You can get your people ready to go before fall season starts without running into scheduling conflicts where it's like, well, this person can make it this day and this person can't. You can create your training once and then let people get up to speed on their own schedule. And you can see who did the training and who didn't. That's really critical when it comes to visioning and also when it comes to safety and security. And then you can spend your time in meaningful life-on-life conversations instead of just using that in-person time to give them new information. And you can reuse standard training in multiple ministry areas or on multiple campuses with zero extra effort. Trained Up is the fastest and the easiest way to get your people trained and ready to serve, period. And you can try it for free for 14 days at their website, just go to servehq.church. That's servehq.church. And I want to thank our partners. I mean, these are organizations that we believe in, we have confidence in, and are making so many people's lives better. And they're the reason, frankly, we can do this for free week after week after week after week. So thank you to our partners for that. And thank you to all of you. You guys are incredibly supportive of our partners. And that's what we try to do. We try to match you up with services and groups that can make a difference in your life and in your leadership. So, hey, without further ado, I am excited to bring you my conversation with Margaret Feinberg. Margaret, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Carrie. It is so, I have so much joy just being here today. Yeah, you got a brand new podcast, right? Called The Joycast. I do. It has been so (laughs) fun. I feel like I'm, I'm the little nimble crawler figuring out how to do it. Why did you get into podcasting? What made you launch it? You know, I had a friend by the name of Jonathan Merritt, and he kept he kept mm-hmm. after me, and he just said, you have got to do this. And so I thought, okay, what is sustainable? What is delightful? And what feeds my soul? Because I believe that it's out of that place that we're able to feed other people's souls more. So I developed the Joycast. It's described as the hap, hap, happiest half hour of your week. We keep it short and sweet, usually about 26, 27 minutes. And sometimes I share kind of what I'm seeing in, in the search for joy and the discovery of it. And I have guests on. And in this first season, we're describing discovering joy around the table. Oh, that's kind of cool. That's neat. And uh, it's fun where you live in a world where you can just have an idea and say, well, let's do it. Right. Isn't that neat? It's amazing. And then to tap into where maybe you're struggling or the things that you're discovering and be able to engage and also not just share what, you, share what you're discovering, but find other people. So I've had all kinds of guests from Christine Kane to Annie Downs, um, just a long list of guests. And we're talking about, you know, how do you encounter the Holy Spirit around the table? Or right. how do you encounter suffering around the table? What happens when you're the one who pulls up the chair to the table and you're suffering? Or what if it's someone else? And how do you respond well? How do you encounter shame around the table? I had an incredible conversation with Michelle Cushett about, you know, post-cancer for her, there is shame 
eating around the table because the food she can't control putting in her mouth and and, and swallowing. Wow. And we don't think about that a lot, but I think a lot of times as leaders, as we become more aware and more sensitive, we learn to accommodate. We learn, I know when you come over to my house now, I always have straws in case someone struggles to eat. It's just one more way to drink better out of a glass and more easily. And just providing real practical, simple ways that we can love people more deeply all around the table and in our everyday life. Oh, that's really awesome. Well, I'm, I'm glad you got into it. And um, a few years back, you started writing. How long have you been writing? Like when was your first book? Was that Ooh. 15 years ago? That was a while. Uh, yeah, it was. It was almost 20 years ago. So I think I started 20. writing. 20. I know. You're not that old. Thank you. Thank you. Keep telling everyone that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, but you're not. I mean, you, you got started very young. And you're one of those rare birds. Everyone says, oh, you're a published author. And I have. I mean, I've written four books. But you need, you need to sell a lot of books to actually have that as a vocation. You've sold over, is it a million now, cumulatively, yeah. Yeah. different books? Yep. Over Which is exceptional. When did you know that this is what I want to do with my life? Were you a little girl? Were you in school? Or did you stumble into it backwards? How did that happen? Yeah. You know, it's funny you look back. I remember I went to, there was a little book fair and I was probably an eighth grader and they said, you need to write a book. So I went home and I wrote a 127 page book. So I come to the class and my mom typed in it In eighth up. grade? Eighth grade, yeah. And um, everybody, you know, comes to class and they come in and they've got like four pieces of paper folded over and stapled. And I put mine as like, boof. And, and you kind of had that sense of something is different about this one than maybe all of the rest. It wasn't until I was a senior in college. I had been a religion major at Wake Forest University. And that senior year, I thought, you know what I really want to do? I want to write. And so hmm. I got an internship a little magazine down on Lake Mary, Florida, and it called Christian Retailing. And I interned with a guy by the name of Cameron Strang. <laughs> so connect the dots for anyone who doesn't know who that might be. Yeah. So he was a sophomore uh, in college at the time. And, and he said, one day I'm going to start a publishing company that's going to go after this generation and we're going to publish books and we're going to have a website. And a few years later, he founded Relevant Media Group. And that mm. is good old Cameron. And he has been a longtime friend and advocate. And he was the one who actually published my first book. So I'm forever grateful to him. Oh, isn't that fascinating? And it was a what publication you met him at? Yeah, it was It was called Christian Retailing. It was this tiny publication that would serve the Christian retailers in our nation back when there okay. were more yeah. of them, many, many more of them. Yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 15, 20 years ago, there were a lot more Christian retailers, retailers, period, than there are now. And so it was an industry publication that the two of you met. That must have been some some good copy back then. It was, and it was just, for me, I, I was amazed because I got introduced to, to the publishing industry, and it was actually during the internship I realized that people who work for publishing houses and magazines really don't get a right. They edit everybody else's writing, and I wanted mm. to write. And so after that internship, um, I had a short stint of being a terrible missionary, and then... <laughs> Moved in with my parents. Did you go? Like, where did you go to? I did. I went to Honduras um, and I discovered me Espanolas Terrible. 
And I was I was robbed at by knife point. I just kept having all of these terrible things happen. And I went to the longtime missionaries of the nation, and I just said, "Is this is this normal?" And they said, "No, go home." Oh, really? You're, you're really bad at it. So yeah, if this is happening, you need to leave. I flunked okay. out. I flunked out, and I I moved back in with my parents. I went down to my little library in Steamboat Springs, Colorado. I checked out all nine books on writing. It said ninety seven percent of writers never make. It. And I said, perfect. That's for me. And so. Wow. But that's true. 90%, 97% of writers don't. I mean, and even having published a book, I do a variety of things. And I suppose I could live off my writing income, but it would be a very meager existence. <laughs> you know, it would be like, all right, honey, we're having beans again tonight. Um, so In our tents. So, yeah, I get it. What was your eighth grade 127 page book about? Do you remember? Yeah, it was actually, it was a fiction based on um, our life. As a young kid, I, I actually grew up on a boat in the Caribbean. And so it told adventures, uh, probably based on real life at, in eighth grade, um, of, of those adventures living and growing up on a boat. How did that happen? That you were raised on a boat in the Caribbean? I have amazing. Okay, where's yeah? <laughs> we're all over the place. I have um, remarkable parents who are very free spirited, and so they were actually in the surfing industry and made surf shops, uh, surfboards, and had a surf shop down in Cocoa Beach, Florida. And one day they were sitting and saw a sailboat and thought we should buy a small one of those and go to the Bahamas. And so I was two, and they thrust me into swimming lessons, and then we started sailing to the Bahamas for months at a time. And sometimes, for instance, instead of going to third grade, we just lived on the boat all year, and I would send in my homeschool homework like every six months. It was a little sketchy back then. And and just lived this life learning. My eighth, my I remember I was eight years old. My birthday, I went out and, and speared my first lobster. So love fishing, love conking, love beaches, love the Caribbean. And that's a huge part of my growing up years. I'm always fascinated about the things in a childhood that shape us as adults, for better or for worse. That's a really unusual story. I don't, I don't think I've met anybody who grew up in the Caribbean on a sailboat uh, from the age of two. When you look back on that, in what ways did that shape you, do you think now? I think it had both incredibly positive and incredibly yeah. challenging uh, part of it was we were primarily at remote islands. And so okay. there would be times that I wouldn't see another child for six or eight weeks. And yeah. the and lack, you, were you an only child at the time? I was an or only for a child. Yep. Only child, period. No mm-hmm. siblings. Yep. So it was just mom, dad, and I. And so that isolation, I think it, it definitely took a, a heavy social toll. There are still times yeah. that I walk in a room and I just, I can't read it. I don't have the EQ that other people have because I, I never really developed those basic foundational skills. And wow. I remember going to third grade after we just, or fourth grade, we'd just been boat schooled. And I went to the school and they played a game called kickball. And I remember standing in the field watching these children run around and kick a ball and thinking, why are they doing this? This is so silly. Like, there's so much more fun that we could be climbing trees. We could be searching for coconuts, and 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 so learning to integrate again was really really challenging. Um, on the on the other side of the spectrum, I think that you know being a third culture kid, which is really what it is, if you grow up in a different culture and then are thrust into another one, it makes you incredibly okay. 
adaptable. It makes you uh, uh, able to, um, I think it makes you curious. I think it makes you want to learn. And I think it gives you an openness of discovery that is a lifelong gift and has really shaped me and equipped me to be a writer and to be a, a passionate pursuer of God. And, and in the books I write, et cetera, they're often a little bit just a little bit different in the topic. Yeah. I was going to say, it's a little, you have very, uh, from the outside looking in, it seems eclectic interests and curiosities and angles on things. Yeah, it's all tied for me spiritually into this hunger to um, to know and explore and help others discover the wonder of God and His Word. And mm. so that is incredibly broad. But if you look at the maybe the religious landscape and, and what is available, I'm the one who's thinking, well, well what if we took it from this angle? What, what if we took this perspective? And then bringing those ideas um, to light and helping hopefully give people a vocabulary for their faith and imagery for their faith that maybe they didn't have, but that is sticky and is able to become a, a portal or a, a small gift box through which God can speak to people. I'm I'm curious. I, a couple of weeks ago, I was talking to Brian Houston. I was he was interviewing me for his TV show on Hillsong Channel, and one of the things he raised in the interview, and I'm going back to your childhood and your third grade experience, was he said, you know, what shaped you for better or worse is your childhood. And I talked about moving a lot before my tenth birthday, and that once I hit 10, I never really fit in. And Brian said, I had a similar experience and I can't remember the exact amount, but I think it was like he moved seven times in a, in a small window. And he said, I always felt like I was on the outside looking in. So my question for you, as I, as I talk to leaders, whether you're reading biographies, whether it was Churchill or whoever, or I talked to a lot of leaders who have ended up making a big contribution with their lives like you have, like Brian Houston has, often those are kids who didn't feel like they fully fit in in elementary school or high school. Do you see a correlation between that? I think there is. I think there is this, there, there is the struggle. I, I think, I think yeah. there's a struggle both within and without. So, you know, if you talk to, uh, I've talked to many people, for instance, from the Chicago suburbs, and they complain mm-hmm. ruthlessly about the suburbs and that 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 very much um, conformist kind of uh, cut and paste and cut and paste over and over again kind of existence that is so so homogeneous. And and yet for the outsider, I remember growing up and aching to live in a track home where all the houses matched. I, I even uh. say, if you come to my closet, all of my hangers are the same because I learned as a young kid, the one thing I could control in a world that was constantly changing was my hangers. And so wow. all of my hangers still match. And so there is that craving. Gosh, so do mine. <laughs> Maybe there's a deep, profound, con- I've had that thing. It's so weird. It's like, talk to my wife, Margaret. Yeah, Have you met Tony? I, I don't. Yes, yes, yes. We were at that dinner together. Yeah, absolutely. So you've met her. And whether it was plastic hangers in the early days or now they're all, I don't know, velour or whatever. I don't know what they are, but like they have to match or like I freak out. I don't know what that is. That's so funny. It's true. I get the wooden ones from Ikea currently. You can buy a lot of them, fill up your closet. They're fantastic. <laughs> that's, that's the best. So that's interesting that, that you had that experience. So how did you cope with that? 
Mm. How did you, how did, did you end up back on the mainland once you hit high school or it was like, yeah. nope, the boat till you were 20? No, it was uh, fourth grade is when we, um, we moved yeah. back. We got off the boat, but then my parents, we moved from uh, Florida to the mountains of North Carolina. We lived off the grid. We had all of our own well, grew all of our own food, lived that kind of lifestyle that people are now living back in the 80s. Um, and spent about five years there. And then one day my parents woke up and said, we want to be ski instructors for real, not on the East Coast at Cataloochee in North Carolina, but in Colorado. We all packed into a car, being the three of us and the dog, took a vote when we got to Denver if we wanted to go to Aspen or Steamboat. We'd never been to Steamboat before. And so we went, rented a place sight unseen, and were ski bums for the winter. And at the end of the winter, I said, Mom and Dad, I love it here. Can we stay? And they said yes. So I grew up largely from junior high on in Steamboat Springs, Colorado. Man, oh man. That's such a fascinating pedigree. And again, part of that that fa- that that shapes your identity, right? And the way you see the world. It does. It does. Um, and it's interesting. Now I look back and I say, man, that really helped me for what I do today. Uh, being mm-hmm. flexible in different cultures and even not just around the world, those are obvious, but even the United States, the cultural shifts between a South Carolina and a Utah are profound. And learning mm-hmm. to navigate that and handle that well. Also, loving life on the road. That hunger that they gave me for travel and discoveries, I take great joy in the places that I get to travel and speak and explore and learn from and see the beauty of what God is doing in all these churches in our country and around the world. It, it feeds my soul. One of the things I remember talking to you and your husband, I think it was in when we were speaking at the same event in Hawaii, we had tacked on some extra days to, uh, I mean, it was the first time I'd ever been in Hawaii. We're going to stay there for a little while. And you said something really interesting about your travel rule that that I've never forgotten because you're on the road a lot right like in many years typically how many days would you be on the road it can vary. We've cut down a lot. We used to do a couple hundred a mm. year, and now we, we no. pretty much limit it to about maybe somewhere between about 70 or 80. We really tried to trim that down. Right. Which, which for most people still sounds like a, a crazy amount on the road. But you had a rule early on where you said, no, if we go to speak somewhere or engage an audience, that is work. And we do our holiday, our vacation, our pleasure stuff later. Do you want to explain a little bit behind that? Because I think that this all goes into self-awareness and what works for people. But I think it's really interesting that you're that much a student of yourself. Why is that still your rule? Why did you make that your rule? Logic would say if you're going somewhere and maybe an event is covering your travel, surely it's less Mm. expensive to tag on some few days, either before or after. The problem that we've discovered in our own lives is either way, whether we do it on the front end or the back end, we're either partially in maybe vacation mode, but already starting to low-grade internally gear up for work mode, or we're coming out of work mode, and the transitionary time to get into vacation mode eats up our time and days. And so we Mm. keep those separate as much as humanly possible. And it, it has worked really well for us to have that clear sense and really programming our body. I know for me, I know a lot of people struggle to get on vacation quickly. I, I have, have trained my body that, okay, if it's a vacation, I'll start thinking about it, um, dreaming about it, getting it in my in my body, preparing for that. Even as the stress builds, obviously, whenever we leave from work, there's always that extra load. Oh, but yeah. then, But trying to at least mentally get myself in the state to say, no, this is vacation. This is when you're going to rest and rejuvenate so that I get in that mode quicker. So as a result, usually our ideal vacations are seven days or less. 
um, often by day. Really? Yeah. So like, short. They are, unless unless they're over, unless we're going on the other side of the world and we start eating up, you know, huge yeah, yeah. amounts of travel days. Um, yeah. yeah. Then we're going to boost that up. But yeah, seven seven is seven to eight is good. Uh, by that time, we've we're completely rest, we're rejuvenated, and we'd rather we'd honestly here's the trick we'd rather take two one weeks than one two week. Um, tell me why. Because there's a sense of anticipation and looking at our large year-long calendar of marking out various points where we know that we are going to come away to a lonely place or a beautiful place or a yummy place and rest for a while. See, and that's interesting because, uh, you know, navigating work and life is so difficult for so many leaders these days because (laughs) there's almost no such thing as the office anymore. Work is in your pocket, work is on your laptop, it's on your iPad. And, and I'm, I'm curious, I want to talk to you about disciplines and rhythms as a writer and what works for you and what doesn't. But I want to drill down a little bit more on this work rest thing, because you were the first person I heard say that. And you're exactly right. You nailed my logic. It's like, well, you know, I'm getting a little bit of money to speak here and the flights are covered. So doesn't it make sense because it's cheaper just to tack on a week on my own dime while I'm here? Maybe it was four days um, but we all have difficulty navigating that. How long did it take you to figure out that for you and your husband, it was a much better move to make the break? Like, is there, is there some pain underneath that? Was it just one of those moments? How did, how long did it take you to figure out that that was a good rhythm for you guys? I think it took a few years. It took up saving a lot of frequent flyer miles so that we could afford to make the vacation the vacation. Yeah, 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 exactly. Right. But after three or four or five years, I think we went on several tag-ons and we realized we came home empty and not full. And I thought, mm. wow, that what what did we do? We saved money, but we we had no gain. In in the yeah. in the deep recesses of the soul and the spirit and the body, and I think that was that was why we we do it. And now I'm so proud. My husband has been amazing. Life um, this year and last year he did it too, but this year I jumped on board. And we have a huge in his office a huge year long calendar, and we sat down and we mapped out for the entire year every um, whisk away weekend. We have one per quarter, and that's simply <sighs> going to a nearby hotel and just enjoying each other. Uh, we we mapped out our date nights for the entire year. Um, and we mapped out the vacations that we knew that we were going to take, and we obviously leave space for more. And it has been so life-giving. And there's give and there's flex, and if something comes up, we move it and we bump it, but we're conscious of it. So, for instance, two weeks ago, we missed our whisk away, and so now we're going to have one next Sunday night. And just go and rest and, and unplug and get out of the house, because when we're in the house, all I see is everything to do. I see what mm-hmm. needs to be cleaned, fixed, put together. But when I'm somewhere else, I don't see any of it. I'm, I'm whew, relaxing more. And I think for a lot of people in today's culture, home is also a place of work. Not just, you know, clean the garage, mow the lawn, but I got that chapter to finish. Or I could do five more emails. So when you're on true vacations, the way you take them now, you're a writer. When are you ever done? You know, you, you're, you're a podcaster, you're, you're writing all the time. Are you completely unplugged? Do you do an hour a day? What is, what is the rhythm that you have so that you feel you're completely rested and refueled? Yeah, you know, we recently got back from a week-long vacation and it was, it was I took one day midway through and I worked for about two and a half hours and mm-hmm. 
I answered only emergency emails, which probably took less than 10 minutes a day. And that was it. Mm. And so I, so that's it. Emergency emails, 10 minutes a day. You turn your phone off or, or what do you do? Leave it in the hotel? Leave it in the hotel room. It's amazing. That thing, I call our like adult cocaine binky. You know, we think we need it. <laughs> So much. Cocaine thinking. <laughs> but it's amazing when you leave it behind. You don't really need the whole world goes on. It's, it's, it's fantastic. Yeah. Okay, no, that, that's good on rhythms and, 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 and rest. What other, while we're there, what other disciplines and habits do you have that really help you do what you do? Because so many people listen to this podcast, whether you're in the church, whether you're in a company, you're in the world of leadership, which is often the world of intangibles. Um, yeah, there are some metrics here and there, but at the end of the day, when are you really done? When are you done leading people? When are you done leading yourself? When are you done? When have you done enough? What are some rhythms, disciplines, and habits that keep you healthy as a human being and follower of Jesus? I would say number one, not everything is for sale. In other words, in this life of leadership, and especially if people are plugged into a church or some sort of ministry, you can make it so that you're always having to, everything you discover from God, you share with others. And that's really tempting as a writer, podcaster, etc. But I have things that I keep forever just between me and God. And there's something so healthy and so rich. There's some jewels, I love you, but that's for us. And that's just drawn a real healthy boundary for me. And I think kept me out of the, I must read the Bible to get something, to produce something, because that, that's just not a healthy pattern. And so for me, I'm more interested in, in getting those, those treasures for me and then, and then kind of discerning, okay, no, this is, this is right, this is for others, or this is in the vein that I know that I'm supposed to write or research, and of course. But, but keeping things to myself has been really healthy. And obviously, I'm not going to ask you to tell me what they are because that would ruin it or to give me an example. But what I'm trying to say, it's, it's interesting. I try to read uh, one or two books a year. That I mean, there's a ton of stuff I read that I never write about, talk about. It all shapes you, but like just delightful books. Do you know what I mean? Books that are truly for enjoyment. I'm never going to preach this. My, I'm pulling examples from my own life. So my Bible reading plan almost every year, made a change last year for the last 20 some odd years, has been the Bible in one year because I'm not going to preach on Joel anytime soon. Or I just finished Leviticus, which strangely I really enjoyed as a lawyer, former attorney. I really, really enjoyed Leviticus because it's full of laws, but like I'm not preaching Leviticus anytime soon. I'm not blogging on it. I'm not writing about it. It's just stuff for me. And even my barbecue habit, which I do Instagram about, I get messages all the time for people who are like, dude, you should get them to sponsor you. And I'm like, no, that's like sacred. I don't, I don't want to sponsor. And even if they offered it to me, I'd rather go buy my own charcoal because that's something I do because I really enjoy it for me. Are you talking about that stuff? Um, I think I'm talking initially more just personal stuff with me and God. I mean, just some incredibly rich, Insights. beautiful, breathtaking, but I can't tell you what they are. <laughs> uh, and I won't ask. I won't ask. So that's good. Not everything is for sale. Yeah. And I that's think that's a is, really interesting idea. And then from that spiritual perspective, like you, there are things that are just, they're just my life. They're my friends. If you notice on Instagram, et cetera, I, you know, we put some things, but most of my relationships, most of my vacations, most of my things, you'll never see a photo of, you'll never know that I went. And that's a really, I think that's a healthy place to be. Hmm. 
What does a day look like for you as a writer? Mm-hmm. And I know there's a difference between when you're under deadline and when you're not, but can you walk us through what your your life as a writer, content creator is like? Yeah, you know, I think uh, ideally, I think people think writers write, you know, all the time. And the truth is, is that in today's world, uh, you're, 95% of your time is usually spent marketing, whatever expression of that that is. So I only get about 5% of my time to write. In my devotional life and in my spiritual life, I love to mix things up. So hmm. whatever that time or space is, there will be months that I will engage in it differently. So I may dive into a particular book of the Bible, a passage. I may um, practice gratitude. I may spend time reading particular authors and just go through seasons of that. But this most recent season began with a book recommended by Kurt Thompson, who's a wonderful author of Anatomy of the Soul. And he said, you should read Into the Silence by Michael Laird. And it's about uh, centering and silent prayer and creating time each day, growing just by a minute, starting with a minute, adding a minute each day of just breathing in the name Jesus and exhaling the name Jesus. No Mm -hmm. performance, no asking, no anything except for the sole purpose of being with Christ. And this simple practice has profoundly um, impacted my life over the last few months of just sitting in silence with Christ because I have a tendency to want to earn or perform or accomplish. And in simply being that, that, you know, head rested against the shoulder of Christ, finding an inner stillness, an inner peace that is then starting to transform outwardly other areas of my life. So that's really helpful from a spiritual... And do you do your um, your devotional time? Do you do that in the morning, in the evening? What what works for you? I usually do it in the morning. And lately I've been coupling it with a reading of a gospel and then uh, making daily affirmations every day that are rooted in scripture. And that those proclamations that I am called and equipped and empowered. And I end them with a line that says, I am on the offensive team for Christ today. Because I think so often we end up playing defensive, and I want to be on the offensive team. Isn't that interesting? Craig Rochelle told us on a previous episode, he does daily affirmations as well. I think he's taught on that. Is that something new for you? Daily affirmations? You've done them for years? No, I've started that. Uh, I've done them in the past, and then I started again this year, just afresh. I, I was in a dark period, struggling. Um, I think just just in a dark season and realized I had a friend who who intercepted and said, Margaret, somewhere along the way, you have made agreements that are simply not true. And I remember spending about two mm. days and repenting and saying, God, I'm so sorry. I, I don't want to live this way. I'm going to live in alignment with who you are and your plan and your hope and your vision and all of you that I can possibly have. And literally within two days, I, I felt that that weight and that darkness lift and just began proclaiming in word you know, this this is who I am in Christ. And also recognizing, thanks to my friend Kurt Thompson, that those affirmations are not enough, but that they have to be experienced in community. So it's one thing to say, I'm called and I'm empowered, but it is another thing to look at you, Carrie, and say, you are called and empowered and equipped for this moment in time for the very things that you are doing with the gifts you have. And when we start in that kind of a conversation and living that out in community, that's where even deeper transformation takes place. 
how do you do that in community? Like, do you, do you, is that small group? Is that with you and your husband Leif or what? what That's with our what do you do? friends here. We surround yeah. ourselves with a, a wide variety of friends and backgrounds and belief systems and all of those things. But we're also, I'm very intentional about asking questions that help open up the door for God to move. And so, you know, sometimes sitting around and, and, taking time for each of us just to say the incredible things that we see in each other or asking the simple question, you know, where have you seen the Holy Spirit at work in your life recently? And man, it is amazing how those simple questions will blow the top off a conversation. Oh, that's great. So that's spiritual. Uh, take a, take us through some other disciplines, habits, routines that um, are helping you these days. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of times at the end of the day, making a list, very simple practice, so I know what I'm supposed to tackle and what the priorities are the next day. I know that if I'm speaking and perhaps traveling on a Friday, I will try to take off at least a half day or more on Thursday so that by the time that I reach that audience, I am refreshed and I'm in a place where I can serve them out of a place of strength and fullness rather than out of exhaustion and weakness because I spent a lot of years doing that and I don't want to do that anymore. Mm, hence, is that one of the reasons 200 days on the road down to about 70? Yes. Yes. Let's yeah. do less and do it far better. Uh, any other disciplines? What about when you're in a writing season? Do you, how, how do you handle that then? And then I want to talk about marketing because you, that's fascinating that 95% of your time is marketing, 5% is writing. Everybody, I believe, has a creative window. Even if you don't consider yourself creative, you are creating. Whether you are making yep. architectural designs or whether you are building spreadsheets, it does not matter. And so I believe that every person has a certain rhythm to their creativity. And for me, my strongest days are Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, if I've had a weekend off. And so I may write for... 12 or 14 hours on a Monday, 12 hours on a Tuesday, 10 on a Wednesday. But honestly, by Thursday, I'm no good anymore. I may be able to write mm. three or four hours, but then I shift sides of my brain into the editing mode. And then on the last day of the week, I'll do more administrative task-oriented. And so I coordinate and maximize my creative writing time for my creative peak time to get the most out of it. And I can be the most efficient. That's fascinating. So 14, you can do up to 14 hours of writing a day. I, when I write, I feel the holy hum of God's presence. Really? So you're in your zone, you're doing what you were created to do. Is that research and write, study and write, or is that, nah, I'm, I'm doing multiple chapters here? There may be a, a little bit of research in it. It depends on the type of the book. The more recent books that I've done require an enormous amount of research. Yeah, but but yeah. even that, you know, I'll work through and I may have a word goal in order to identify it. So I'm going to clear 1,000 or 1,500 or maybe even 2,000 words, a day, you know, today. And then the next day mm. I may stair-step that, that word count downward. But it's very focused. It's very intentional. I will optimize my eating. I will optimize my athletic or my my exercise patterns to produce the very most and best creative energy that I can possibly have for those days. So, and I know everybody's different, but what does that look like for you? Like, do you, do you avoid certain foods? What is that? Do you exercise before you write? And, and the reason I want to ask, I'm fascinated by this, having burned out 13 years ago, I've got my own system and rhythm and I couldn't agree more that there is such a connection between the mind and the spirit and the body and the ability to produce, like, as I've said to my team for years, I get paid to think 
am paid to create. And there are days I can be in a fog. If I don't take care of myself, I'm in a fog and I'm not producing or I'm producing at far below the level that God has made me capable of producing. So I'm really curious about what are those exact rhythms. And I think a, a lot of the time leaders I talk to, they're, they're unaware that there is such a connection between it's just go, 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 but it's not. So drill down. Yeah. So I'll be intentional on Sunday and and really try to Sabbath that as much as possible. Rest, Mm -hmm. minimize energy expenditure. Uh, If I do go shopping, shop for healthy foods, uh, high protein, lots of vegetables, you know, try to cut out the sugar and the carbs that are going to cause the crashes and the emotional, et cetera. Um, In the morning on on Monday, I'll take time to to pray and reflect, but then I will probably dive right into writing. I will not allow myself to open up my inbox or look at my phone, and I will focus all of my attention on writing. Then, as I dive into it, um, you know, I'll have healthy snacks nearby. Um, when I hit that moment, maybe even morning or afternoon, where I'm feeling a little bit stuck, I go for a walk. And the mm. walk really stirs my creativity, or I'll go for a swim. And it's the repetitive nature of the laps, again, that spurs and helps me get the breakthrough and the time to think through where I'm stuck in the idea or the concept. And then repeat that again, possibly for another walk uh, in late afternoon, and then just tuck in, zeroed in, um, and write uh, you know, until 8, 9, 10, 11 at night. And then I also make sure that the places that I write and the places that I edit are physically different. I never write and edit in the same place because I want that creative space to be pure just for being creative and the the other side of the brain to be pure just for looking for how to strengthen and make better. So is that different places in the house yep. or? Yep, absolutely. So the couch, a lot of times in the living room, which my husband is not crazy about because I have an office and all the different things, but I end up writing in the living room. <laughs> Incredible view. And so I write in there, but then often when I edit, I also have a, a chair in our bedroom that I love to sit in and I'll edit there. Um, and then when I do administrative, I'll usually go downstairs on the treadmill and do that there. Hmm. That's that's really interesting. Is this has this been a gradual process of self-awareness over these last two decades? Yeah, it has been. And just recognizing that when you prime a place, you're you're subtly constantly communicating to your body and to your brain, this is where I do this. This is where my prime time for this is. And so when you you just enter into that space, much like the vacation we talked about earlier, you're pre-priming for for peak performance. Hmm. When you say you have a word count. Because uh, everybody's a little bit different. I talk to a lot of writers. Uh, I'll often say, sometimes I'll say, I need a thousand words or I need a thousand good words. And you know what I mean, right? Yes. Like a thousand words is different than a thousand good words. Uh, tell us about the range of what you think you can produce. Because I'm, I'm thinking about aspiring authors or even people who create content. And they're like, you know, my contract is for 55,000 words with my publisher. You think, well, that's impossible. But you bite that 500 to 1,000 words at a time or 1,500. Maybe on a a peak day, I might be able to produce 3,000 good words, but that would be an exceptional day. Talk, Talk a little bit. I mean, you've sold a lot of books. You've written a lot of words. What are you learning about what you are capable of producing in a, in a day? Yeah, let's back that up from the start about that contract you're going to sign that says 55,000 words. I'm going to be bold mm. and say it. Let's trim that down to forty to 45,000. Most people do not have time, space, or energy to read a 55,000-word book. You may be <laughs> yeah. one of the authors who has that, but the first thing you do is you trim that down. I think that the, sh- <sighs> the length of books overall is going to get shorter just because of the limited time and resources of people. What is your most recent book? Is it 40? 40,000 words. 
yep, wow. right on the mark. And I aimed for that. And that's where we, we ended up. And so then you've got to think, okay, when is my deadline? How many months do I have? And how many words per day or per week is actually better? Do I need to produce sure. to then give myself six to eight weeks before the deadline in order to have people, at least 20 readers go through and make comments and strengthen your manuscript? So you back it up and that becomes your, your timetable or your schedule. You reverse engineer. Yes. Yeah. And what is, is it typically a thousand words for you? 1200 words? Well, where, where does it even if, out? If it's a heavy research book, I will aim for a thousand words a, a day. If it is a light research book, I'll probably aim for maybe 1500. A peak performance day, just yeah. like you said, is 3000. I am less concerned with good words. I'll just be honest. I am I'm more interested in getting the clay on the paper and then mm. we can we can reform, we can format, we can edit. It's going to take 50 drafts anyway to make it great. It, no matter yeah. where you start, you know, good old Anne Lamott, everyone's every first draft is a poopy draft. So, let's start <laughs> there and let's let's make it great. But I find too many writers get stuck in trying to form that perfect sentence and they just it takes forever and you can speed it up if you oh, get it on the paper and rework it. Well, that's what John Acuff, who's been a frequent guest on this podcast, would say, uh, don't edit at all in the first draft. Just get it out on the paper. Don't worry. Editing's a separate thing. Even if it's junk, even if it's not logical, just get it written. Mm-hmm. You would agree? Oh, I would. You know, I've uh, coached a lot of writers over the years. We even have an online course called Write Brilliant, and we're even looking at having a, a live event this summer. And, um, and and what we find is that if you can get somebody free from all of the junk in their head, and in that place of just getting the words on the paper, in six months or a year, they've got a book written. It's awesome. Really? Do you get junk in your head? When you're writing? Oh, absolutely. What? Absolutely. The This is no good. No one wants to read this. Nobody cares about what you care about. This isn't going to connect. You're all alone in this. Oh, oh, the enemy has a heyday. So how do you get through that? Yeah, I think uh, a lot of it is, is, is pushing that to the side and saying, no, the truth is, is I believe that I'm called and created to do this. And I'm going to develop this message. And regardless of the response, regardless of the, the people who throw flowers and the people who throw stones, I'm going to walk in faithfulness to this and in faithfulness to God. And so that commitment to do that is important. But I mean, even in the last book, Taste and See, it was, it was brutal. It was hard. And part of it was just, that was just a hard book to write. Why, why was that one so difficult? Yeah, um, Taste and See if, is Discovering God Among Butchers, Bakers, and Fresh yeah. Food Makers. I mean, talk about a unique angle. That I remember we were at dinner a couple of years ago, a year ago, probably two years ago now, when you were describing the book. And I'm like, never even thought about it. <laughs> it was brilliant. But talk about what it is and why that one was so difficult. I went on an unusual journey and identified six foods in the Bible, and I went out and found the people who plant, process, and procure them, and then interviewed them, opening up the scripture and asking, how do you read these passages that mention this foods, not as theologians, but in light of what you do every day? And their answers changed the way that I read the Bible forever. I mean, Carrie, time and time again, I found myself asking, how have I studied the scriptures? How did I grow up in the church? How have I listened to so many podcasts and nobody has told me these things? And, and that became the foundation for the Taste and Study book and Bible study. 
But it was incredibly difficult because as a writer, you've got to think several different components. Number one, you need to identify foods in the Bible where which there is enough mentions and enough text to even have the possibility of something insightful and not just some yeah. random throwaway, you kind of made that up, yay, yay, pat you on the head, that sounded good. So, right. so you know, just, just... The little metaphor that became an entire sermon series that, that had nothing to do with the original metaphor, I know nothing <laughs> about that, but continue. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Uh, so you have to pick the right foods. Then you have to go find the people. Now, this is its own challenge because right. I don't know fig farmers. I don't know butchers. I don't, I don't know these people. And so waking up every day and praying and saying, God, I think this, I've been assigned this by you and I'm going to trust you and I'm going to make this a walk of faith. And then going and asking everybody, you know, do you know a fig farmer? Do you know a fig farmer? Nobody knows a fig farmer, by the way. And now there's probably like 17 <laughs> listeners who are going to write you. And I'm like, where were you? Where were you when I was writing this book? <laughs> But but walking it and then finding rabbit trails of somebody who has a friend who has a fig farmer knows a fig farmer, and and then maybe talking to them on the phone, flying and finding these people, and each of these people had to be had to have some sort of worldview that did not clash, but was was relatable to the the project I was trying mm-hmm. to write. Uh, they didn't necessarily have to be Christians' perspective. They had to be interesting. They have to have some sort of personality. You know, if you ask people questions and they're yes, no, or they don't have insightful, you don't have the right person. I went to four. So an interesting fig farmer. Yes, <laughs> yes. And so I went to, you went to four? four dairy farmers and there is no dairy, dairy chapter in the book. I mean, you know, one of them got flooded. One of them was super political. One of them, um, there were just various reasons. And it just, so you'd go on trips and you'd be like, I forgot my, nope, 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 didn't get it, didn't oh, get it. wow. So then you have that. And then really identifying what is a the discoveries that, that perhaps myself and other people have never heard before about these foods at a granular level that opens up the text. And then lining that up with a takeaway that is truly transformative. And so that is not, I, I wrote a book about going to the beach every weekend kind of book. That is a, yeah. that, that, it, was a it was a lot. It was a heavy investment and it was hard. Where do you get an idea like that from? What makes you curious enough about that to say, I think I got a book idea? You know, 10 years ago, I wrote a book called Scouting the Divine, My Search for God uh, Among Wine, Wool, and Wild Honey. And I I actually went Mm. and, and picked grapes in the Napa Valley. I spent time with a farmer, a beekeeper, and a shepherd. And again, did this same process of opening up the scripture and and just had this incredible, it it changed the way I read the Bible forever. But when I was done, I had people walk up to me and say, why did you not spend time with an olive grower? And I was like, well, because I didn't have enough time, budget, but but, but I was like, one day I'm going to do that. And so I've sat on this idea for 10 years waiting wow. for the right time. And um, sure enough, ended up going uh, fishing in the Galilee, uh, finding a premier fig farmer, making matzah with a Yale professor uh, in under 18 minutes, the kosher way, uh, fishing in the Galilee, bringing in an olive harvest in Croatia, um, going 410 feet down into a salt mine in order to, to unlock these, this rich food imagery. And it was so much fun. It was so rich. But seeing people respond and engage, and and not just in the food and the biblical discoveries, but to transform the way that they're spending time around a table, man, it is powerful. Well, and I I understand that. Like, I I mean, it sounds to some degree in a parallel way, like people who visit the Holy Land, which I've never done, but every preacher I know who's gone there says, I will never teach those stories the same way again. You can't. If you actually saw what happened, 
Like, you know, that, that <laughs> it wasn't written for a suburban context, uh, you know, next to Walmart like that, that it, it applies, but the original context is so much different. So where, in a more broad sense, Margaret, where do your ideas for your books come from? Because a lot of people say, I don't even have an idea for a book. Like I don't, I don't, or, or next week's message. Like where do your ideas come from? I usually have a lot of ideas. So they're, it's a pretty steady stream and they are all amazing at 3 a.m. They are the most <laughs> brilliant things you've ever heard. You're waking up, best idea ever, number one New York Times, right? Yeah, yeah wake up the next morning, I'm like, that is so, nope, nope, nope. nope. Um, so I usually sit on an idea for at least three days before I start to let it shake out. And then I will, I'll usually sit on an idea for two years or more and think about it and just pay attention mm. and where does it resonate and where is it, where does that keep coming up? And do I hear it's a ping? You hear this, this almost like when you have a wine glass and you go around in a circle, like when you were a kid and mm-hmm. you heard that sound. That's what I listen for. And and when I hear that reverberating, not just in my own life and my own spirit, but in our culture and my relationships, I say, okay, let's let's start to feel that out. And what's there? And is there enough substance? And really, should this be a blog post or a podcast or is this really a book? And so I take a lot of time to allow it to germinate and grow. Is blogging for you, has that been over the years a way of testing ideas, uh, sifting ideas? Blogging has been an amazing resource for that, but it's so much faster and easier now with social media. I mean, you can engage, throw out an idea, take it from another angle the next day, a different angle the next day, and your audience isn't getting tired. They're actually engaging more. So I have found... How do you do that? How do you do that? Like, Ask questions. I mean, easy. Just I, I post on Twitter, uh, Instagram, Facebook. What do you think about this? How do you do this? Uh, what does this look like? Do you, you know what? Um, neg- recently, I've been thinking about just thought life and asking people. You know, what negative thoughts? You know, uh, which of these three negative thoughts do you wrestle with most? And then, you know, four days later, another. So, which of these three? And so, I'm starting to identify which ones are the ones that are hitting most keenly, and then and sorting through. And people love to give you their opinion. It's one of their favorite pastimes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I get get what you're doing. I will test out bottom lines and I don't do this nearly enough, but I should. Uh, And Twitter's really interesting for engagement. You can do it to some extent on Facebook. Instagram's a different bird. It's my favorite platform. Uh, But you see how many likes, how many retweets, how many... And you think you're brilliant and you you get three likes and two retweets and you're like, well, that didn't resonate. All the time. I'm like, this is the smartest, cleverest. Br- wah, wah. <laughs> I know. And blog post too, right? Like you think, oh, I worked so hard on this. I spent six hours on this post. You know, nothing. Crickets. And then you do a throwaway and people, you're like, what just blew up? That, that wasn't even, what, that was, what just happened? That never goes away, does it? No. Or at least not so far. No, no. Our audiences are always, and the people are engaging are always growing. They're always shifting. They're always, and and they're alive. These are real people. And the way that they think and respond, and, and it also challenges, I think, us, not just in how they respond, but the medium through which we're using. And we always have to think about the medium. And so the question asked on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook are probably going to be different, the way that they're framed, the shortness, um, the length, the buildup in Instagram to kind of getting to that moment where you ask the question. It, they're very different mediums. Hmm. I, I, also in terms of your ability to assess your idea, even though you've written a number of books, you've sold over a million copies, the ability to assess what is really going to connect with people and what isn't, that's still 
trial and error? It is still trial and error. And at the end of the day, as a writer who works with, I, we do do self-publishing as well, um, but who works with traditional publishers, at the end of the day, they they are the kingpins. They are the ones who have the yay and the nay say. And so listening and trusting, and trusting that even if they buy into an idea and then they come back and say, well, the sales team said to listen to that and to trust that, to be a humble writer, to be always ready for feedback, always ready for, I know when I write a manuscript, before it ever goes to the publisher, I've had both liberal um you know, scholars and conservative scholars read it. I've had people of all different ages, all different denominations, all different backgrounds, people who don't know God, all the spectrum read it because I want to know what is hitting and resonating with them, but I also want to know what's bothering them. Because what I find time and time again is the things that make people the most angry, the things that you're going to get all the hate mail for, if you would have edited two words, nobody would have written a thing. Usually, really? yes, usually the things that, that people go way off for, it's just, it's one or two words. And you would have said the same idea without that. And so that's, for me, why the readers are so important. Now, obviously, if you're going and grabbing a, you know, highly controversial topic by the, by the ears, that's, that's a different, but, but for the yeah, average. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you're yeah. saying you said something and you shouldn't have used that word. You should use another one. And all of a sudden... The misunderstand, the unnecessary. I think it's good to be misunderstood as a communicator sometimes, and to some extent, it's inevitable. Uh, but often, it's useless, and that's that's a really good word. Let's talk about marketing, Margaret. So you say you spend the majority of your time marketing these days. What what do you mean by that? Yeah, I think there's a variety. I think part of it is social media engagement, paying attention, um, thinking strategically about how to introduce a product, remind people of a product in creative and innovative ways that isn't just simply, hey, go buy my book. Um, right. But really learning you know, to live in a way that 90% of what you do is a give and you're really serving and loving your audience and only 5 to 10% is, is in that genre, I think is really important. Constantly creating content for those various mediums, uh, including podcasting, which I'm now thoroughly enjoying and have the best time mm. with the Joycast. Um, and, and really looking for... Um, for ways to to partner strategically, um, connecting with speaking events, connecting with other authors, uh, a lot of that it, it is under the umbrella of marketing. That is a word that, by my nature, I cringe from, like most writers, which is normal. Mm. Most writers do not want to market. It's icky. It feels icky. I produce this amazing work. It should be self-evident that you need to go <laughs> and get it. Correct? That's that's where most of us are. One hundred percent. Yes, absolutely. But that is just not the Doesn't reality. And so, learning to to engage in marketing that are true to you. And at the end of the day, in the Right Brilliant course, we have this philosophy that we believe believe in an audience-centric, content-driven approach. In other words, at the core of what you do, you are to serve and love your audience. And when you develop content that does that, it is so much easier to, to speak loudly and boldly about about what you've written, um, and when the content is really serving them, and so thinking audience first. You know, we are so specific about clearly identifying your audience, that person, naming them, knowing what they do, their free times, everything about them, so that when you you are when you sit at a page, you are not looking at an empty screen or an empty sheet of paper. You are looking at a person because that is a real person that you are communicating with, and so these kinds of things are really helpful. Do you have an avatar? for the person who's going to buy your book. And what I mean by that is like a target. That's what they call it often in, in marketing or social media world. But who's your avatar? Do you have an avatar? Yes. Can you, how do you know who that is? What kind of research? How did you, like, how do you figure out? I guess the bigger question, Margaret, is 
how do you know what your audience wants? I mean, I think a lot of the time content creators just kind of guess. So how did you figure that out? Yeah, I started to think about who are the people who I see coming up to me at a book table? Who are the people who are emailing? Who are the people who are responding Mm -hmm. on social media and paying incredibly close attention? And what I discovered is that most of the people who are doing that are the people who are just like the people already in my real life. I have an avatar by the name of Susan. And honestly, I take vacations with Susan. I travel with Susan. I have lunches with Susan. I go for walks with Susan. I live my everyday life with all of these Susans. I have a second avatar named Tim. And I go to dinner with my husband with Tim. I hang out with Tim's family. I babysit Tim's boys. I I spend my free time with Tim and Susans. And so it becomes very easy to have everyday conversations where the same ideas, the same struggles, the same uh, points of connection and conflict are happening that you begin to say, okay, pretty clearly, that is who I am serving and I am loving through my writing. Hmm. That's good to know. And so really you have Tim, you have Susan, but really you're thinking, oh, this is for Matt or this is for Amy. Right. And, and I have those conversations when I'm writing content all the time. And sometimes what a real life Matt or Amy might have said to me makes it into a book disguised. But you do that, too. Oh, all the time. Oh, all my friends are in my books. And also, this is fascinating. My very best friends will all say they read my book when it comes out and they go, we didn't have any idea about any of that. Really? Yeah. And so I'm a very, it's not that I don't tell people, it's that I take so long to think about things. I'm not not telling you to hold something back from you. There are days my husband will ask me, how are you? And I struggle to find the words because it takes me a while to, to know and really cognitively think about it. Have you done your Enneagram? Do you know what it is? Number seven. Woo-hoo! Oh, you're a seven. Okay. I was going to say that sounds very five-ish. I'm married to a five. It's like uh, all these parts of you unknown, but you're a seven. So it's wild, fun, free. Why do you think Taste and Sea Book was so fun? All those adventures, <laughs> all those people, all that food. That was like an Enneagram 7's dreamland. Absolutely. Uh, anything else about marketing? Like what, when you sell a million books and that, you know, there's not that many people who can say they have done that. What looking back on it, and I, I don't want to go back to 20 years ago because it's a different world. Totally. But what are some inflection points where you're like, yeah, pay attention to this and you will serve your audience better. Pay attention to that and you will probably sell a few more books or get your message out there. I think one of the key starts in the very writing and back to your avatar question that you must identify what are the key struggles of your audience and what are you going to help them discover and give them practical tools to do that. Uh, that is the key because then you are not just producing something about you because often writers sit down on the thing they love to write about is themselves. The only problem is if you write for yourself, you are the only one who's going to read your book. You have got to write a book that serves other people and helps them in practical ways. And then the marketing flows out of that. Then I can say, hey, when you pick up the Taste and See book, not only are you going to have all these incredible biblical discoveries, devotional discoveries, you're going to read the Bible different, but at the end of every chapter, there are activities you can do around your own tables involving this these foods, which are going to cause spiritual awakening and transformation in your life and the life of your families. There are recipes, if you love cooking, that you can try out and actually taste these foods that we're describing from the Bible. Uh, There are resources in the back that can help you read different, think more differently about what you buy, what you consume, cut down on food waste. So when I describe those things, I guess you could put that under the 
umbrella of marketing, but really what I'm trying to do is just serve you in the things that you love, the ways that you love, and give you Leif's incredible barbecue sauce recipe. <laughs> That's great, Margaret. So what I hear you saying, and this is, this is fun, it's like understand your audience, understand what they're struggling with, and help them. Help them. Yep. And love them. It's more than help. Love. Mm. Helping is loving. But I think at, at the end of the day, writing is an act of self-sacrifice. And so when you do it really well, you will love them so much that you cannot help but help them in the way that they can hear and receive help. Not something you do mm. to them, something you do for them. Two different worlds. When it comes to your new book, what's your greatest hope when people read it? Mm. I hope that they will read it that they will, number one, never read the Bible the same way again, because now they see those foods on a granular level. And once you start to look for food in the Bible, it pops and it sizzles on almost every page. That those who have wrestled with with the the conflicts regarding food, whether that be eating disorder, yo-yo diets, whether that being at a young age that, that maybe you were controlled by food, that all of a sudden you will awaken to God's redemptive purposes through food. That when you sit down to a table, you will gather around and you will not just eat the food as, as some fuel or some commodity, but you you will receive it as the good gift of God. And when you gather around those tables, you will take moments to prepare. And when people come over, maybe they say, what can you bring? And, and the next time you say, you know, I don't need you to bring anything except your prayers and the expectation that God is going to show up in a profound way. And that sometime in that conversation, whether it be with somebody on the spectrum of faith or maybe far, far away, that you will slip in a question that asks, what is the divine or God, or, or maybe if they, they are the Holy Spirit doing in your life recently, and create that space where you sense God, just His chair at the table, just opening up a banquet in that place. Because I think that when we sit down at a table, we long for so much more than the food on the table. We long to know and to be known, to love and to be loved, to enter that place where where we can be vulnerable and all shame scurries away, and that you and I can become the people who not only experience that, but we create that everywhere we go. I want to ask you, because it's not a Nat, it's not an automatic progression, but there are speakers who become writers and then there are writers who become speakers. You do both. Not everyone who is a great writer is a great speaker and not everyone who's a great speaker becomes a great writer, but you seem to have uh, pretty easy fluidity between both. You do a lot of speaking and a lot of writing. Did Is writing your first love and speaking became a second or how, how has that played out in your life? Writing was the first love. And then I, once I wrote, they invited me to speak and I'd speak. And over the years, I've just really worked at it and, and tried to hone the craft of effective communication. And I'm still, I still have writing or speaking coaches. I still am learning at every event. I'll, I'll sit in, in other speakers and say, hey, here's my notes. If you see anything I can improve, yeah. please, because I always want to grow and get stronger at that. But I, I now feel the pleasure of speaking and it is, I'd say they're equal in the joy that they both bring. That's fun. I, I enjoy both. What, tell us about that journey. You hired speaking coaches, you get lots of feedback. Um, it's not an automatic thing day one that just because you can write, you can speak. So what were some early mistakes you made? Oh. And how did you, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh. I know. I don't know what language I'm allowed to use on your podcast. 
<laughs> I, I, there are kids listening. It's crazy, man. Like, but I know what you mean, right? Hey, I, I, you may have to edit this out. Um, I once spoke at, at a, an event. There were a lot of military people there. I didn't know it at the time. And I, I used the word, I just said, everything is just totally foobar. Well, I didn't know what foobar meant. And, I don't actually know what it means. Yep, so. I'm going to have you Google that afterwards. And that is something that you should never, ever say at a, at a ministry-based event. <laughs> oh, okay. All right. Well, I'll add that to my list of banned words. Now now I'm yep, curious. Yep. Yeah. Um, I was in an, <laughs> I mean, I can make, I can kind of do this all day. So I was in another event and I, I, I said something funny. Everybody laughed. And about like right. 20 seconds later, a whole nother wave of laughter came from one section of the room. And I, I didn't know who or what. And so I just looked over and I went, those are the slow ones. Not realizing that those were the people who were deaf who were being translated to. Oh. <laughs> Oh my gosh! Oh, mortified. I know. It was so bad. It was so bad. That's a that's a fun moment. How do you recover from that stuff? How did you say? Why did you not just say, "Okay, I'm not a speaker. I'm gonna get back into my writing den, and I'm just gonna write for the rest of my life." I think I think I would have if people were not gracious enough to invite me back and to give me the opportunity to improve and and to keep trying and making mistakes and stumbling and. Um, I think it was the grace of others who have helped me continue on this path. Oh, that's amazing. What What about delivery? What have you learned about? Because obviously content's not an issue. You're writing books, you're speaking on your books. So you've got ideas, you've got content, you've got substance. So the challenge I imagine would be to convert that into a palatable thing that you can then deliver. Were you natural at public speaking or is has it really been a skill that you've honed? I think, uh, you know, I did debate team and did a lot of public speaking growing up. And, and that so that provided a solid foundation. But more recently, really working on tonal inflection, uh, volume, loud versus quiet, working in whispering into my talk and my presentation, really learning to use the stage, um, the whole stage as, lo- as far as the lighting will allow, really paying attention to the room itself, how the architecture is going to fight against you or with you as a speaker. Um, and also how the television screens, and if there are if they're using television or video on the screens, what does that look like? How strong are the people using that equipment? Can they follow you if you're walking fast? Where are the dead zones in the light? And what is the audience used to? And how far can you push that? As well as breaking that that invisible line with the stage and going down onto the floor, finding out if there's enough lighting to go in and interact with the audience. So, so really, almost like in in writing, how you have all these different literary devices, developing a a longer, deeper reserve of communication devices for giving those presentations. And and some of them work great. And some of them, I go, well, that that didn't work. We're gonna, you know, we're gonna we're gonna hone that. We're gonna retry that in a different way. Is that what you do? Well, yeah, you know what? Yeah, I pay attention to all that stuff. Literally, that's that's like a checklist in my head. Uh, and inflection, I see it in, in multiple dimensions. There's louder and softer. And then there's higher and lower. And everything in between, I don't know how to draw that out in 3D, but it's the way you use your voice when you're communicating. And of course, as you know, when you're on the stage, like if you're in a normal conversation like this, you're at one level. When I'm on a platform, I'm at twice the level, but it sounds like you're at this level, which is really weird. It's just the weirdest thing. And uh, and all that about trying to break the invisible wall and where are the lighting zones. 
and and how good is the 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 sound guy? You know, is he gonna is he gonna make you too hot, or are you gonna have to yell and lose your voice an hour into the event? Uh, all of that stuff. So yeah, I, I get that. What what helped you the most? Because there's a lot of budding communicators too, and communication writing is very difficult. Communication is very difficult in a public forum. What are a couple things looking back on it that you really said, man, that was breakthrough. Like when I when I when I figured this out, it moved me to another level. I think for me, learning to work that stage really moved me. I used to be a pretty stationary or move only you know eight feet across, and now if it's a forty foot stage and there's lighting. I'm covering every square inch of that baby. And so the stage really helped break me out of my boxy, more boxy communication mm-hmm. style. Now, I also recognize there are certain, if I'm in a church with a big old pulpit and it's anchored down, there's not a whole lot of place to fly. So you have to <laughs> always adapt to where the room is. But but the stage and learning what is possible there and creating spaces in the stage where certain stories are tell, told and then you go back to that space, that that's a lot of fun. And it becomes freedom mm-hmm. and it becomes delight and it becomes more playful. Wow. Do you memorize your talk or do you have notes or how, how do you do that? Yeah, I, I would say I ingest it. Memorize is very mm-hmm. rote and recited, but ingesting mm-hmm. is this concept, this deep belief that that resides inside. And so the words may often sound alike or they may flare off in a creative way, but I know where I'm going. I know what I want to accomplish and I know where I want to bring that audience. But a lot of that is done before I ever get to the event. You know, talking to the host, finding out what their goals are, meeting right. it, saying, I want to knock it out of the park for you. Tell me what you want. Do you want, a, do you want a response time? Do you want it to look like this or this? Or what is your community used to? How far can we push it? And so those conversations are epic and crucial. Mm. And do you do a, a like a pre-event call then with the host? I do, I do, and and yeah. and create the time and and because I just when I go somewhere and I'm invited, I I am there as a servant. I am a guest, and it is a privilege. And so yeah. coming into that place with that attitude of of just I'm here to serve, and but but without the right communication, I may miss it. And I may miss what would have been so easy to provide and to serve in that community and see God work. That's so good. Margaret, anything else you want to share while we're together? Ooh, I am so grateful for you, Carrie. And I am grateful for all of the leaders out there who listen to you and learn from you. You bring such brilliance and such wisdom and such blessing in what you do. And so I don't know how often, I I know you hear it, but I hope you hear it. Behind you, um, there is a, a wall of books. And in that, book, in that wall, if you turned around, you would see mm-hmm. the richness and the depth and the insight and the work. And that, that is you. And that is what you display each and every day. And it is, it is stunning. And we are so thankful for you. Oh, Margaret. I don't know what to say. You made me very emotional. Thank you. You are a gift to the church. I've thoroughly enjoyed, and to the world. And I want to thank you for what you do. And thanks for being such an encouragement behind the scenes and now on on this podcast as well. Um, where can people find you? Where can they connect with you? Uh, where's the easiest place? Yeah, go to margaretfeinberg.com. You can also visit the Joycast on iTunes, Spotify, and all your favorite podcast distributing islands in the planet and the universe. Uh, we're also on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter at M.A. Feinberg. And I hope, um, I hope you will... You will enjoy the the fun and the fresh and the random and all the questions that I ask doing little research from you as you engage. 
And we will link to all that in the show notes. Margaret, thank you so much. What a gift this has been. Thank you, Carrie. Oh, Margaret, that was that was so kind. I love the ending to that interview. And she was just so affirming. And, you know, that that's one of the best things. Sometimes, you know, I, I get this question all the time. What are what are some of the top leaders, writers, thinkers, speakers really like? And I am so glad to report that 99% of the time the answer is better than you think. And every once in a while you run into you know, the opposite, but uh, Margaret's just a gem and we've had some time together on the road and her writing is just brilliant and comes from a totally different stream than mine, uh, which is one of the things that makes this life so interesting. So make sure you can check her out at margaretfeinberg.com. And of course, you know, we have show notes and we have transcripts and we have all of that. And you can find it at kerryneuhoff.com slash episode 267. If you enjoy this episode, please share it on social. And thank you for all of you who leave ratings and reviews and tell your friends because once again, this podcast continues to grow and we love being able to serve leaders that way. And thank you again to our partners. If you're looking for a summer training solution, do not miss the 14-day free trial with Trained Up. Go to their website at servehq.church and for 14 days, you can try it for free and train your teams when they're on vacation this summer. You don't have to worry about getting people in a room. And what are you doing about social? Hopefully you're doing this. You're heading over to ProMedia Fire. And if you go to ProMediaFire.com forward slash carry, C-A-R-E-Y, you will get 10% off your plans forever. That's for life, just because you listen to this podcast. So make sure you check those guys out. Hey, we are back real soon with a fresh episode. Next week, we get together with a a guy that will be remembered... (laughs) for generations. His name is Luis Palau, one of the greatest evangelists of our generation. And uh, this guy, I'll tell you, it's incredible. He's had he's had a fantastic ministry. And next week we dive into his friendship with Billy Graham, how evangelism has changed, how he's adapted to that change. And honestly, at 84, he has, as he's shared publicly, stage four lung cancer. Um, he is more alive at 84 than most 24 year olds I know. And one of the rare interviews I've done where we both ended in tears. It, it, was, it was just powerful. Here's a short excerpt from the next episode. Mr. Graham was praying and I could hear his voice was muffled. So yeah. I sinned against the Lord and opened my eyes uh, to see what was going on. And Mr. Graham was spread eagle on the floor on the carpeting of his hotel, you know, praying his heart out for this evangelist he never met before. He probably never saw him again. And he asked the Lord, open doors for him, Lord, anoint him with a spirit. You know, he poured out his heart. And I thought, this is amazing. I still break down when I tell you the story. You yes. know, to see, yeah, to see Mr. Graham flat out on his face. Huh? And when he finished, the guy got up and said, oh, thank you, thank you, you know, and Billy hugged him and everything. And when he walked out, I was so shaken by seeing Mr. Graham, I mean, flat on his face for this fellow. I, I don't know what stupid question I asked, but Mr. Graham said, Luis, I read in First Peter, humble yourselves before the mighty hand of God, that in due time, he may lift you up. And he said the theologians have their theories on that verse, but I take it to heart. Humble yourself. And the more we humble ourselves, the Lord will open doors.
So that is next week on the podcast. If you subscribe, you get it automatically for free. I only ever listen to the podcasts I subscribe to. So if you're new to this, just hit subscribe. It's free. Coming up, we got some amazing stuff. We have, who have we got? David Ann Wilson, talk honestly about marriage. Jenny Katrin is back. Ken Coleman, the legendary interviewer. Kevin Jennings is back. Ron Kitchens, a CEO in Michigan who shares his story in a really powerful way. Chris Norton, if you don't know that name, uh, I'm pretty sure he's got a New York Times bestselling book coming out this summer. He's been all over Good Morning America, has a powerful story. Ian Cron is back. Ron Edmondson, David Kinneman, John Townsend, so many more. And Max Lucado. Did I mention he's coming back to the podcast in the next few months? So all of these and so much more, you get that for free when you subscribe Guys, thank you so much for making this such a rich experience. I appreciate you. I'm in your corner. I'm cheering for you. And I hope our time together today helps you lead like never before. You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never before.